Happy Peak. Great to see you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors, so we're going to be jumping into our time of teaching right now. And again, thank you so much for bringing in those coats. Uh, if for some reason you forgot uh, to bring them in, you could drop them off tomorrow uh, during one of the services. And if you're not paying attention tonight, you can sit in again, hear the message a second time. Um, but uh, anyway, thanks for, for uh, participating in that. It's going to be awesome to see how many coats that we can provide for, for the homeless here in L.A. And so um, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use every week for our time of teaching. And we're going to jump in if you're all ready to go. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and to be pursuing you as a church. And Lord, we just reflect on your word that says the kingdom of God is not words, it's power. And Lord, that's why we're really here. We're here to engage with you, to hear your voice, to be transformed by you as we have a true encounter with you through your spirit and through your word. And so we pray that as we go in this time of teaching, we pray that your voice will be the loudest voice in our head, that you be speaking to us uh, in power and clarity, applying your word to our lives so we can learn how to listen and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, the story starts off, it's about noon, and the sun is up, and uh, the sky is bright. It's a summer day. It's hot out here, and the reason he's here is because he's the low man on the totem pole. Uh, the reality is, is that this is where he spends most of his days, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, not by choice, but by necessity. And it's not like this, uh, this job doesn't have its perks. I mean, he, he loves being out in nature. Um, he, he loves uh, watching the sun rise in the morning. Um, he loves uh, being out at starry nights, but it's, it's a tough job. I mean, in the summer, it's blazing hot during the day. In the winter, it's freezing cold at night. Um, and, and though he enjoys a time often alone, um, though he, t he enjoys the freedom that this job gives him, that no one else is telling him what to do, um, and though he, he appreciates the time it gives him to think and reflect and compose in his mind, um, still, it's a tough job, and uh, it's not one that he would ever choose. In fact, it's not a job anyone would ever choose. And uh, as uh, the low man on the totem pole, he looks into his future, and he, he often wonders as he's sitting out here in this barren hillside, what's his future going to hold? And what, what's his life going to look like? It's not looking very positive at the moment. But as he sits there on this particular day, and he looks across the valley in the distance, there's something that looks like a man. And the closer it becomes, the, the closer it's obvious that this is a man. Not only is it a man, but it's a man running. And not only is it a man running, but it's running in his general direction. And as he's getting closer, he began to make him out and he begins to recognize this man. Now he's getting nervous because the question is, why would this man that he recognizes, why would he be running out here in the middle of nowhere and running apparently to him? And as he gets closer, he finds he's getting more and more nervous, wondering what has happened. Well, today... We are continuing the series that we started last weekend that's called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. And if you're here for the very first time, I want to welcome you. This, what we're doing in this series 
is we're, we're standing back and we're focusing in on 10 key events, 10 uh, turning points in the story of the nation of Israel, what, what I'm calling the kingdom era. And the kingdom era is going to last about 400 years. It's going to start a little bit before 1000 BC. So uh, about a thousand years before Jesus, it's going to last for over four centuries until the year 586 or 587 BC uh, with the destruction, the final destruction, the siege and destruction of the city, the capital city of Jerusalem with King Zedekiah. And so this 400 years is what I'm calling, it's the era of prophets, priests, and kings. And what we're doing in this series is focusing on 10 of these key events and the prophets, priests, and kings that are involved in these key events, not only to better understand the story of the nation of Israel, or not even to understand the big picture story the Bible is telling uh, that Israel plays such an important part, but, but even more to understand and to kind of, um, to, to stand back and to, to look at some highlights of kind of what it looks like to follow Jesus in our life, some life lessons that flow out of these 10 events. Now, if you were here last week, we kicked off this series by taking a look at the life of the first king of Israel, whose name was King Saul. And if, you're, if you saw last week, we watched the rise and the fall of King Saul that was uh, triggered in the end by this rebellion against God. And so after that rebellion, right away, God gives a message to the prophet Samuel and tells him, you're to go and anoint the next king. Now, the next king is not going to, to reign for maybe 12, 15 years. It's going to be a while, but he tells him right away to go and find the next king. And so to understand uh, this, this second king, who's a very famous king, we know him as King David, right? One of the most famous people in the Bible. To understand his story and the event that we're going to look at, the key turning point in his life and the life of Israel and the life of all creation, frankly, uh, today, we need a little bit of backstory. So there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called The Epic Promise, The Backstory. So as we open the story today, we need to go back to the, the story we started the day with. This, this, uh, this, this young man sitting on a hillside in the middle of nowhere, kind of low man on the totem pole, doesn't want to be here, in a job, very tough job, he's got some perks, and he's looking across the valley, and he sees someone running towards him. Uh, and the closer he gets, the more his heart is in his throat. And this is a story from the life of King David. And so this is a story that flows out of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're not going to turn there. But in 1 Samuel 16, we're introduced for the first time to David. Now, David's a, a young, um, he's, he's young, but probably a teenager, a young teenager at the time of the story begins. And we find out in 1 Samuel 16, he's the youngest of eight brothers. So he has seven older brothers. And as young man, kind of the run of the family, you know, the, the, the young, uh, uh, lowest man in the totem pole, he gets the worst job. And the worst job is being a shepherd. Like we often think, oh, how cute, you know, Christmas time, the shepherds. It's a horrible job. Like no one wants this job. It's low pay. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're, it's hot during the day. It's freezing cold at night. You got to defend your flock from wild animals. You got to often pay for them if they get killed. It's a horrible job. No one would choose this job. But his future is not looking so bright. He's a low kid on the totem pole. Uh, you got seven older brothers and, you know, brothers. Like, uh, how, you know, what kind of inheritance are you going to get? And so he's out there in the middle of uh, nowhere, and he sees someone coming towards him hastily. And, uh, and when he gets there, he's blown away because uh, the messenger that's from his father, that's why he recognizes, 
uh, is telling him that uh, this legendary man, I mean, he's legendary in the nation. He's been kind of leading the nation for 30 years or so by the name of the prophet Samuel. He's come to their town. Now, they, they live in the middle. It's like Nowheresville, you know? Like we would call it like, I don't know, Fillmore or something. But uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's like much smaller than Fillmore. Sorry, if you go to Fillmore, if you come from Fillmore, uh, God bless you. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, uh, what's that place when you go up the grapevine? What's that place? Uh, Gorman, Gorman, that'd be good. That is about Gorman, yeah. Like, let's, let's go, go, go with Gorman. Uh, so he, he, they live in this little town. It's called Bethlehem, right? And uh, Bethlehem's a nowhere place. It's, it's about five miles from this Jebusite stronghold that'll one day be known as Jerusalem and will be, and be captured by David. But right now it's like Canaanites are living there. And so uh, the, the question that's gotta be running through his mind is like, why in the world would this famous legendary man be coming to our little town, let alone our family? And then the messenger explains to him, yeah, he says, we're not eating till you show up. And he's like, what? Me, I'm the run of the family. And so, they, uh, he travels back and then it blows his mind because when he gets there, the king pulls out a vial of olive oil and anoints him in the name of Yahweh. You're going to be the next king. Now, this is like every boy's dream, right? And so he anoints him. It's kind of crazy because he's young. He's probably, we don't really know how old, but, you know, maybe he's 10, 12, 13, something like that. He's young. Um, and uh, on, on top of that, we already have a king. You know, it's like if you already have a king and you're anointing another king, your life's in jail. Like, who wants to do that job? So uh, anyway, we're told that this starts this new era of David's life. And so the Spirit of God, a catch is very important. Uh, often we tell the story of God, this is missed, but the Holy Spirit comes upon David in power, much like he'd come upon Saul in the beginning of his uh, kingship. And so the Holy Spirit comes out, and this is going to lead to, to many years, like 12, 15 years of ups and downs, uh, exciting times. The Holy Spirit's going to empower David to do some amazing feats, uh, like uh, 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 kill a bear, kill a lion to defend his flocks. You know, after he's anointed king, go back and watch the flocks, kid. <laughs> you know, that's fine for Samuel, but around here, you're still a low man. So... Um, so he's gonna, he's gonna have to, uh, uh, he's, gonna, he's gonna kill a lion, he's gonna kill a bear. Eventually, maybe you know this story, he's gonna kill Goliath in this, in this big conflict. And because of that, uh, he's gonna skyrocket to, to popularity, not only in the nation, you know, it's, it hits the newspapers, you know, young kids, shepherd boy, five stones, it was like all over the internet, uh, little clips of it. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, uh, everyone's watching that stone go in and cut off the head, and it's very popular. A uh, ton of hits on YouTube. But anyway, uh, uh, he becomes very popular in the eyes of the nation. But also Saul, King Saul, he's no dummy. He puts him in charge of some military and he's rapidly rising. But then if you know the story, Saul begins to get jealous and also begins to be afraid. He's a threat. He's going he's to lead a coup. And so he starts to chase David all over, trying to assassinate him. So David's going to spend many years of his life on the run in the deserts of Judea, uh, hiding out from Saul, often a step away from death, actually leaving the country at one point because things are too hot for him. But when he's 30 years old, so we're like probably 12, 15 years after the anointing, 30 years old, uh, uh, Saul and Jonathan are both killed. His son Jonathan are both killed in battle. And so David becomes king of the southern, uh, the one tribe, just a single tribe, the tribe he's from, the tribe of Judah. And that initiates a seven-year civil war. 
between the followers of David and the followers of Saul. David comes out on top, so seven years after being king in Judah, he unites the whole nation again. He eventually conquers that Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem, makes it the capital of the nation, both religiously and uh, politically, brings the ark there. And so, uh, and then after that, God begins to continue to bless him, protecting him, and he begins to, to uh, kind of take on the surrounding nations, and he wins battle after battle. And so, uh, he's riding high. His stock is high. At this point in time, he has a great idea. And uh, he wants to run it by the new prophet in town. So Samuel's dead by now. He was an old man. He's, he says, we got a new prophet. His name is Nathan. And so he's going to run the idea by Nathan. And this leads to one of the most, ep- to the most epic promise in the Old Testament and one of the turning points, uh, frankly, of human history. And, uh, and so many people are familiar with the story of Goliath, right? They're familiar with the story of Bathsheba. Um, not so familiar with this story, and yet this is, in many ways, the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up, let's turn them on to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we will start in verse 1. So in 2 Samuel, verse 1, it says, after, uh, after the king, that's David, after the king was settled in his what? Okay, so God's taken him from pasture to palace, right? He's, he's, uh, he's been king now for, for many years, uh, seven first years over Judah, and now he's ruled over the whole nation for a while. And, uh, and so the Lord, and Lord, of course, all caps means what? Yeah, Yahweh. So Yahweh has given him rest from all his enemies around him. So, so things are settled down. You can't really do a lot of building projects when you're in the midst of a war. You know, it's not the time. Um, so now that things are settled down, he's built his palace, but he has this idea. It's a great idea. He says to Nathan the prophet, hey, here I am living in a house of cedar. So he's paneled, he's imported. There's hardly any timber in Israel. And that's why they're always importing timber. So he's imported cedars from Lebanon, paneled out his uh, palace. He says, here I am living in the house of cedar while the ark of God rema- uh, remains in a tent. So remember that when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and, they, and God entered into relationship with them, that God said, I want to live, live amongst you. You live in tents. I want a special tent right in the center of the nation. And so he had them built this special tent that was called a tabernacle. We call it the tabernacle. And inside the tent, there's a couple compartments. The back compartment, the smaller compartment called the holiest place of all, or the way you say it in Hebrew is the holy, uh, holiest of the holies. And so inside of there is where God would meet with the high priest, meet with the nation. And in that holiest place, that compartment, there was a box. And it was a special box called the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. And uh, with the ark where the covenant uh, relationship, you know, was kept. Um, and so the box was four feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet tall, covered with gold, two angels on top called cherubim facing each other. And there between, uh, between the angels is the, where, in a sense, God, the spirit of God would hover. And it was on top of that box where the blood of the atonement would be put once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. Right? So, so, uh, so that's, what, that's what he's talking about. So he says, he says, this doesn't really seem right to me. 
He says, I'm living in this incredible new palace paneled with cedar while the ark of God, the most sacred place in Israel, he's living in a tent. Doesn't seem quite right. And so Nathan says to the king, hey, whatever you have in your mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. He says, hey, uh, I don't know, it sounds like a great idea to me. God's with you wherever you go. We've seen that. If this is what's in your heart, go ahead and go for it. But notice Nathan doesn't ask the Lord. I want you to notice that. He doesn't check in with the Lord. He just says, yeah, that seems like a great idea to me. God's with you. I kind of assume this must be a good idea. Let me ask you something. Have you ever assumed <laughs> that something was a good idea only to find out later that your good idea was not a God idea? All right. So, he says, um, but that night, the word of Yahweh comes to Nathan, middle of the night. He says, listen, go and tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says. Now, interesting, this is going to be the longest monologue since Moses. <laughs> longest monologue from God. Tells you this is important, all right? So, go and tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says. Let me ask you a question, David. Are you the one to build a house to dwell in? Is that your job description? Is that your assignment? Is that my vision for your life? Now, just to give you a little spoiler, the answer is no. Right? He said, uh, God says, you know, I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up of Egypt to this day, about 400 years. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Now, let me ask you another question. Whenever I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Uh, spoiler. Answer, no. He says, so then, tell my servant David... This is what Yahweh, the Almighty, says. Listen, I, and I want you to notice how many eyes are in this. I'm talking about you, Dave, what you're going to do. Let's talk about what I do, all right? He says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock. Remember that kid we started the day with? Out there wondering what he's going to do with his life. A low man, I've been watching sheep forever. This doesn't look good on a resume. My life's going to amount to nothing. He says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I took you from the pasture to the palace. I have been with you wherever you've gone. All those 13 years when Saul was trying to kill him, and then seven years during the Civil War. I've cut off all your enemies before you. Like, I'm the one who's done that. And now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. I want you to see, uh, think about that. Who is more famous? David? Alexander the Great? Caesar? Like David's right up there. And uh, he says uh, in verse, he says, now make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. So, and I will provide a place for my people Israel. 
and I'll plant them so that they can have a home on their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel and I will give you rest for your enemies. Now remember historically where we are. We forget this. It wasn't that long ago we were in the era of the judges we talked about last week. An era of hundreds of years of cycles of oppression, horrible oppression. We're only, we're not that far, maybe 20 years from, from that time when Saul has come up, right? Well, we'd be longer than that now, but Saul came up and then David finally has taken power. And so things are looking up, but, but we're not that far from a time of incredible oppression. Think when the United States started, those first years were pretty tenuous. By 1812, you're having another war with England. It's like, we forget how tenuous those years were. The kingdom was young at this point. And God is making an incredible promise. Not only will I make your name great, like the greatest men in the world, but I'm gonna plant my nation Israel. And we're not gonna have to deal anymore with these cycles of violence. I'm going to bless the nation. It's a huge promise. And uh, so in verse, uh, in the middle of verse 11, he says, and Yahweh declares to you, this is incredible, that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. Now I want you to remember this. How did this story start off? David has a vision for his life. I'm gonna make a house for Yahweh. In a powerful play on words, God says, you are not gonna build a house for me. I am gonna build a house for you. But he's not talking about a physical house. He already has a palace. He's talking about a spiritual and a political house. He's talking about the house of David. He's talking about a dynasty of kings that will come out of his body. And so he says, the Lord declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. So when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, in other words, when it comes time for you to die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now this is quite the promise because when God removed Saul, he didn't let his Jonathan take over. He, he removed that. He's saying, I'm gonna do it differently with David. Your own flesh and blood, one of your descendants, is going to be established over your kingdom. Now, uh, of course, David doesn't know this at the time. We know it looking back that this is this next king that God's gonna establish is David's sixth son, not the first son, his sixth son, and his name is Solomon, or Shlomo in Hebrew. And <laughs> I like Solomon. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he is going to be established and, uh, and he's actually the son of Bathsheba. Talk about God's grace there. But anyway, <laughs> little, little side note. All right. And he says, verse 3, he's the one who will build a house for my name. Now, remember, David wanted to build a house for God. God said, no, that's not my vision for your life. But you will have a son, and he will build me a house. Now, catch this. It wasn't that it was a bad idea. It's just that it wasn't. God's idea for David. And it was, David wasn't the right person and it wasn't the right time. I've often told you that when God gives us a vision, it's not just the vision, it's not just the what, it's the when. The right what at the wrong when is a disaster. 
this vision, he was both the wrong what and the wrong when. Wrong, wrong who and the wrong when. So he's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the next word? Forever. Now this, this, uh, this prophecy, this promise, it's, it's starting to move from amazing, I'll make you great, I'll, I'll, I'll protect the nation, your son will, will take over the throne. It's moving from amazing to epic. We are starting to move from amazing to epic. And he says, and I will be his father and he will be my son. Now in the ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, uh, kings were often seen as sons of the gods. David, from this point on, the king of Israel, because of this statement, is often going to be seen and referred to as the son of God. But as we're going to see as the story unfolds, obviously, there's more to this promise than meets the eye. He said, I will be his father, he will be my son, and when, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, like you would with a son, wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. I'll bring, you know, other nations to discipline him. He said, but catch this, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So he's making an incredible promise that even if he uh, disobey, I'll discipline him, but I won't take the kingdom away. And, he, and then, and now we move to epic. Your house and your kingdom will endure before, forever before me. Uh, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established what? Forever. forever. We just moved from amazing to epic. Now, this is an amazing set of promises and from this point on, we don't have time to go in and David's response, but basically, as you might expect, he's completely blown away. His response of, is one of shock and awe. Uh, like, who am I? Uh, the shepherd kid, you know, that grew up the run of the family, that I would be blessed by this. And he goes on to praise God for his loving kindness, not only to him, but to Israel. This amazing set of promises. Um, and then he goes on with a very beautiful and bold prayer, basically saying, God, I'm asking you to keep your promise. And, uh, and so it ends, right? And so this becomes uh, one of the most important passages in all the Bible. We'll talk about that more later. But what I want to do today is take a uh, stand back from this uh, epic turning point in the life of Israel, the life of all creation, and I want to highlight two important life principles that flow out of this for our lives. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Epic Promise, Two Life Principles. And the first one goes like this. God has a vision. God has a vision. And you say, a vision for what? Pretty much everything. Um, that we see that in this passage, he has a vision for David's life, doesn't he? He has a vision for Israel. He's got a vision for the future kingdom, and as we'll see later, he's got a vision for all creation. And you see this throughout the Bible. And throughout the Bible, we're introduced to this, this God, this God we meet in Genesis, that I often describe as powerful and brilliant and creative 
and, uh, and who is completely good and who is, loves beauty, right? Who out of this creativity and this love in this beauty, for love for beauty, this order, he creates this incredible world. And so what we see from the very being is God is a creator, that he has a vision. And you see it today, he talks to David, and he says to him, David, I'm the one who took you from the pasture. That was my idea, right? You're coming up to me with your ideas. That's great, but it was my idea to call you that day. It was my idea to anoint you. It was my idea to be with you every step. I'm the guy who, uh, I'm the God who protected you all those years. I'm the God who put you in this position. It's interesting that uh, this week, if you're uh, in our uh, message-based life group, you're going to be studying Psalm 139. And it's a psalm of David, and there's no footnote as to when he wrote this. My hunch would be he wrote it towards the end of his life, after he'd seen God's amazing work in his life. But it's an amazing psalm, and it's a psalm that talks about God's intimate knowledge of our life. And David says, you, you've known me from the time I was in my mother's womb. And uh, by the way, just quick sidebar, this is why as followers of Jesus, it's so important that we're always pro-life, Right? Because life begins in the womb, right? Um, and so, this, this whole, just a quick sidebar. You know, we live in a culture today that's all about, uh, that's rejected a creator and living as if there is no creator. And so all this talk about who are you to tell me what to do with my body, the reality is it's not just your body. My body belongs to the creator. Your body belongs to the creator. Our bodies belong to him. And inside a woman's body, what belongs is a child that belongs to the creator. It's no longer just your body. You see? But when you reject a creator, you reject the truth that goes with creator. You see? So, so David says, you've been with me. You saw my, listen, the unformed substance in my mother's womb. You knit me together in the darkness. So you've been with me every step of the way. When I get up in the morning, you're there. When I go to bed at night, you're there. When I go out for the day, you're there. When I come back at night, you're there. Before there's a word on my lips, you know what I'm going to say. And then he says, every day of my life was written in your book before there was one of them. You are the author and the creator of my life. And he said, if I were to count your thoughts towards me, they would be more than the sands on the sea. He said, this is too wonderful for me to even understand. You see, God is a visionary and what we see in this passage today, in David's life, in Nathan's response, is that God has a vision for your life. He has a vision for my life. But catch this, our vision is often different than God's vision. Is that not true? And what we see in this event is that David had a vision for his life that was different than God's. Now, when David was uh, in the pasture, 
He wasn't thinking in terms of building a palace. The visionary had a vision for David's life so much bigger than his life, but when he was a shepherd, he didn't share that vision. But once he became king, he began saying, hey, I'm king. I have a palace. It doesn't seem right to me that God will be living in a tent when I would be living in a palace. So I'm thinking I'll build a, a palace. I'll build a temple, a, a house for God. Now, let me ask you something. Does that seem like a good, now, I know we're in church, but just pretend you're not. Does that sound like a good idea to you? It sounds like a great idea to me. It sounds like an odd, seems like a noble idea. But what we're going to see today is not every good idea, even great ideas, are a God idea. And this is the point that God is making in this passage. Let's take a look at it again. It's interesting. In verse five, as God begins to download this message to Nathan to deliver to David, he says, go and tell my servant David. This is what Yahweh says. He asks the question, are you the one to build me a house? Is that my vision for your life? Like, how did you come up with that? In verse 7, hey, whenever I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say? See, it was a good idea. It was not a God idea. And here's what I want you to catch. That as followers of Jesus, this is so critical. We understand that it's not part of our job description to come up with a vision for our life and to ask God to bless it. Okay? Now, well, it's easy to say that, but isn't this what we do? God, I've got a beautiful plan for my life. Let me explain what it is. I just need a little power. I need a little financial backing here. Uh, I need you to work some things out in a few people's lives. Um, but I'm telling you, this is brilliant. And you and I, God, we're going places. Here's what I want you to catch. As followers of Jesus, our job is not to create a vision for our life and then ask God to bless it. Our job is to seek God's vision for our life and then carry it out. And what's beautiful for us as followers of Jesus is Jesus models this so beautifully. Let me ask you this. Hey, if there's anyone who should come up with a vision for his own life, don't you think it'd be Jesus? Like he's fully capable. What? He's, he's, got the, he's got the mind for it. He's got the power for it. Like if there's anyone that should be coming up with a vision for his life, It'd be Jesus, but what I want you to catch is even the greater son of David did not come up with a vision for his life. He was constantly saying, the reason I've come is not to carry out my vision, but to carry out my father's vision. And I want to walk you through seven 
passages super quick. We're going to rifle through them. But when you see them all together, hopefully this will imprint on your mind like a young duckling following the, the monk. That like this will just like stay with you for the rest of your life, right? This may be a great like note sheet to like, you know, scan in uh, or to put up on your mirror or something. But let's just take a look. These are all from the Gospel of John. So it starts off early in his ministry in chapter 4. He's just talked to the woman on the well. Uh, he's, you know, his, his men come back from the town of Sychar. They've been to Chick-fil-A. They've got some food for him. <laughs> and, uh, and so they say, hey, Jesus, got your food. And he says, yeah, I don't need it. And they say, well, did someone else bring you food? Some jack-in-the-box or something? And he's like, no, he says, my food, in other words, that which sustains me, that which in- energizes me, empowers me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish what? His work. Not my work. And this is what empowers me. This is what I feed on. This is what energizes me. Not to carry out my own agenda, but to carry out my father's agenda. In the very next chapter, he had just healed someone on the Sabbath. This wasn't going over big. And in John chapter 5, he says, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do what? Nothing Nothing by himself. Now, like who's talking? This is Jesus. He says, hey, you're watching my ministry unfold. You're upset because I just healed this guy in the south. Can I tell you something? I don't do anything without talking to headquarters. Uh, He can only do what he sees his father doing. What his father is showing him, because whatever the father does, then the son kind of imitates him and does that. Look at the next one. This is after his uh, Bread of Life sermon. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my what? My own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Like, I'm not here for my own agenda. Uh, next, chapter 7. My teaching, you know, is controversial. He says, my teaching, it's not my own. If you don't like it, it's not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Like, Jesus didn't come up with his own message. John 8. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I, what? I always do what pleases him. John 12, I did not speak on my own accord, for my Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. And the last one in John 17, this is the night he's arrested, he's praying, and he said, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work, what? You gave me to do. Can you see this? Like, Jesus models for us that our job is not to come up with an agenda, a vision for our life, say, God, will you bless it? Our job is to say, God, what's your vision for my life? And catch this. What's your vision for my life in terms of my relationship with you? What's your vision for my life in terms of my relationships in general? What's your vision for my life, for my dating life? What's your vision for my life in terms of my marriage? What's your vision for my children and how I lead them? What's your vision for my career? What's your vision for my education? What's your vision for my lifestyle? What's your vision for my ministry? What's your vision for my finances? The the stance, the posture of a follower of Jesus is not, this is my vision, will you bless it? The posture is, God, what is your vision for my life and how do I carry it out? And that leads us to number two. And I love this. God's vision 
is bigger and better. Now, while I've got you amening, can I just say that it doesn't always look that way? You know, God's vision for your life when you, your name is Joseph and you're having amazing dreams how your mom and dad and your, your brother is going to bow down to you. That becomes less exciting when your, visions, when your brothers are throwing you in a pit and selling you into slavery, right? The vision looks awesome when you're getting anointed by the prophet Samuel, you're going to be the next king. It looks less than exciting when uh, you're on the run, a step away from death for many years of your life. The vision looks great as you look back and talk about the burning bush experience. The 40 years before, it was just burning out there. No bush. <laughs> Have you ever, I mean, it's easy to say this, but the reality is often in, rea when in real life, the vision doesn't look bigger and better. It looks a lot worse. I remember when I was a young man, which was many, many years ago. Good point, front row. Uh, they got a lot of amens on that one. But uh, no, I was, uh, how old was I? I was uh, 20, 20, 27, 27 years old, right? So like 15 years ago. And uh, I was working at a Christian high school and uh, I had moved into administration and through a series of events, uh, I was let go. It was done in a very uh, kind of underhanded way. I had definitely played some a part in that. You could kind of argue whether it's a good part or a bad part. But uh, I had taken a stand. Uh, it was a tough stand, and some of the board members didn't appreciate it. And so I was told, um, yeah, we no longer need a dean of students at the school. We're bringing in a new principal next year, and he doesn't need that position after one year, he changed his mind and thought he did need that position. But this is what I was told. My wife was pregnant with our second child and delivering the month they let me go. At those times in our life, and we've all had them. At those points in our life, does God's vision look bigger and better than yours? No. It only looks bigger and better in the long run. And sometimes that long run is in the light of eternity. Till we'll know the full story. But fortunately, in this example, we get to see this principle that is so true, worked out so clearly in the life of David. Right? And this is what David discovered. See, he had a vision for his life. His vision was, I'm going to build a house for God. Beautiful vision. God said, no, you're not. That's not my vision for your life. He said, let me tell you the vision of your life. I am going to build a house for you. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. And on top of that, I'm going to make the nation great. And they're going to have peace from their enemies. And on top of that, you're going to have a son. And on top of that, he's going to build the house. And on top of that, he's not just going to be the first king. He's going to be in a line of Davidic kings that's going to go on forever. Would you say that's bigger and better? 
than David's vision? Can I tell you something? That this promise to David, let's look at it again in, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Just the very end of it. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Can I tell you something? This is the pinnacle of the Old Testament. It doesn't get any higher than this. In fact, there, there were several quotes I had and I wanted to share with you, but some of them were so long and so scholarly, you kind of lose the point in it. So I, I just chose out this short one by this one scholar, Old Testament scholar, O. Palmer Robertson, writing on this. And he says, this covenant with David, in other words, what we just read, this promise with David, the covenant with David is the climax of the Old Testament. You know what he's saying? He's saying everything in the story of, of Israel and everything in the story of God leads up to this moment and everything leads out of it. Everything from the opening chapters of Genesis, creation of the world, the fall of our race, chapters one to three, and then the, the call of Abraham, that out of this one man, I'll make you a great nation through whom the whole world will be blessed. That's Genesis 12. And then we watch the whole story begin to unfold. And we're told in Genesis 49 that out of one of the 12 tribes will come a king whose rule will, will the obedience of the nations will be his. And we have these hints and we have these, these leadings along. But when we get to 2 Samuel 7, we get to the mountaintop. Everything flows out of this promise. That there will be a kingdom. A kingdom that someone will come from the line of David who will rule forever. Everything comes out of this. This is one of the greatest turning points in the Bible. It's from this promise that with the rest of the promises of the prophets will come in the next hundreds of years, over the next 600 years, the prophets of Israel will build on this promise. This is ground floor. This is a foundation that one will come from the line of David. And on top of that, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah, they will all build and each one will add rooms and stories to this promise. And we'll get more and more information about this great king, this Mashiach, this great Messiah in, in Hebrew, Mashiach, the anointed one. The one who's anointed like David. The ultimate anointed with a capital A. That one will come from the line of David who will rule creation. In fact, David himself. In Psalm 110, there in your notes, David will write a psalm later in his life. And this becomes, catch this, the most quoted verse in the whole New Testament. And in this psalm, he says, the Lord. And what does the Lord mean? Yahweh. Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord. So David's writing this. Yahweh says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And when Jesus, the last week of his life, marches into Jerusalem, and they're giving him a hard time for his claims, he says, hey, I just have a little question for you. You know that psalm? 
You know, remember the one that David wrote? Remember that? Like Psalm 110. Remember that? Remember when Yahweh says to David's Lord to rule? A clear reference, they would all agree to the Messiah. Isn't that kind of weird that David would call the Messiah his Lord? Someone higher than him? When he is the son? Isn't that kind of weird? What do you think about that? What we see here is David had a vision, I'll build a house for God. And God says, no, that's the wrong vision. That's a good idea, it's not a God idea. Uh, I've got a better idea. I will build a house for you. And through that house, I will restore all creation. How about that? <laughs> so this leads to a couple questions. The epic promise, two key questions for your life and my life. The first question is, are you creating your vision or seeking his? So we've seen today that as followers of Jesus, we're called not to create a vision, but we're called to receive his, to seek his. But I don't know about you, but as fallen human beings who aspire to be God in our own lives, we just naturally tend to create a vision for our life and then ask God to bless it. It's what we do. This is what comes naturally. And you say, oh, I don't do that. Oh, yeah? Wait until your life takes a turn you don't like. And when it does, what do you say? Do you go to God, hey, God, thank you for revealing the new vision for my life. Or do you go to God and say, what are you doing with my life? This is not, I didn't think I'd be here. I never saw myself here. I, I didn't see this being part of my life. See, we have all this natural tendency to create a vision for our life and ask God to bless it. And what we see is as followers of Jesus, our job is not to create a vision and ask God to bless. Our posture is to be constantly, God, what is your vision for my life? In all these areas we've talked about, whether it's our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our dating, our marriages, our family, our careers, our finances, our lifestyle. What is your vision for my life? And, and so this is easy to say, but it's very hard to do, especially at those times in our life where our life takes a turn we don't like and involves pain or suffering. It's very hard to believe at those times that God's vision is actually bigger and better than ours, isn't it? Very difficult. But this is what we see today when we see all through Scripture is that God's vision for our life is always bigger and better in the long run, often in the light of eternity, than ours. And when we don't realize this, when we don't realize that our job is not to create vision, but to receive vision, when we don't realize it, we get ourselves into trouble. Because what happens is when we have a good idea, we assume it's a God idea. And when we don't check that out and we don't run it by God, to say, God, is this of you or not? We can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Like, let me give you some 
great examples of good ideas that may or may not be God ideas. Now, let me be super clear here. I'm not saying these aren't God ideas for your life. I'm just saying that often they aren't. But because they're a good idea, we assume they're a God idea. Like we have, we have to say, hey, I have this great idea. Let's move out of California. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Is that a good idea? Yes. This state's crazy. The only thing we got going is the weather, right? So is that a good idea? Yeah, but I'll hear this all the time. Hey, we want to move out of California. We want to get a place. We get a bigger place. We want our money to go farther. We want to get our kids out of here. Now, is that a good idea? I'd say, yeah, it's a good idea. But is it a God idea? I can't answer that one. You have to answer that one. You got to go before the Lord. Here's another one. Hey, I can't stand my job. I hate my job. I'm quitting. I'm taking out student loans. I'm going back to school. Good idea or bad idea? Who knows? We need to buy now. The market's going up. We'll never get another chance. I know it's a risk. I know it's going to go up, but we need to buy now. If we don't buy now, we're never getting in. Here's one. I haven't been dating in three years. And I think it's long enough. I, I think I'm over my last relationship. I think I'm over. I think I'm ready. Good idea or bad idea? Here's what I want to say. I want you to clear. I'm not saying it's a good or bad idea. What I want you to catch is just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it's a God idea. And when we assume good ideas are God ideas, we ruin our lives. We can make mistakes that are very hard to come back from. Number two, the second question is, are you investing time seeking his vision? Are you investing time seeking his vision? So we've seen today that God has a vision for your life. And the question is, are you seeking his vision or your vision? And then are you investing time in seeking that vision? Now this is one thing I think David did well, that he has this great idea, but what saved him from being derailed is he went to the prophet and said, what do you think about this? Like he said, hey, you've got the hotline to heaven. Could you check this out? And as it turned out, it was a bad idea. It wasn't God's idea, and it would have been disastrous had he tried to move forward with that idea. So here's the thing. If you want to discover God's vision for your life, it has to start by asking for it. Right? We have to ask for it. God, God, what is your vision? Not this mind, but we have to ask for it. But the second thing we need to do is we need to invest time in seeking that vision. You know, one of the things we saw Jesus as a model, one of the things Jesus models is that Jesus models investing time seeking his Father's will for God's vision for his life. I mean, when he picked his 12 disciples, do you remember that story? He spent the whole night in prayer. He could have just said, I know these guys. And uh, other than Judas, they seem pretty good. Um, 
right? Do you remember after his feats of 5,000? He goes up in the hills till four o'clock in the morning to pray. Remember that? I love in Luke's gospel in chapter five, it says when, when things are starting to get really busy, his ministry's kicking off and everyone's coming, it's getting crazy. And sees that Jesus got up early in the morning and withdrew to a lonely place, which he often did. Do you see that Jesus didn't go, hey, I'm the son of God. I got this wired. He was also the son of man. And he knew that for him to stay on track with his father's vision, he needed to spend time with his father. He needed to be listening for his voice. What do you think he learned how to watch what his father was doing? I only do what I see the father. Wouldn't you think the father showed him that? One of my favorite prophecies about the Messiah is in Isaiah 50. And the Messiah says there, the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, he wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. So if Jesus needed to spend time with the Father often, significant in time, carving space out of his busy schedule, even early morning or late at night, that's the only time he had. If Jesus needed to do that, to listen to his father's voice so that he could stay on track and carry out the father's work for his life. How much more do we need it? And if we get to the end of our life and say, I'm not sure I carried out God's vision for my life, we say, well, how much time did you spend seeking that? And the answer is, you know what? I was always too busy. Then who will we have to blame? that we have not learned how to hear his voice, how we've, we've not learned to listen, we've not learned to follow, who we have to blame other than ourselves, that we were just too busy to ask God for his vision for our life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful passage of scripture. We're just so thankful, this incredible promise out of which all other promises come about the king who would come from the line of David who would turn all things wrongs to right, the one who'd be a true son to you, to his father. And for the, the model that he lives for us, the, that he leads for us of really pressing into your will and saying, I'm not here for my agenda, I'm here for the father's agenda. That's my passion, that's my food, that's what energizes me, that's what sustains me. I don't need your Chick-fil-A, I just need his will. And Father, we pray that our heart would grow for your will. And we pray that we would be a church and we would be people that say, our posture is not my will but your will. Our posture would be, God, here's what I want, but what I want more than what I want is I want what you want. And I pray that, that we would learn to listen and to invest and to pursue you, that we can hear your voice and carry out your vision because we know that not every good idea we come up with is a God idea. We pray as we worship you now, as we worship you for your goodness, this goodness is your vision, it's always bigger, always better. And as we surrender, we learn to surrender our vision to your vision because we believe that. We pray and meet us. And as we bring our offerings, our gifts, our tithes, we pray and use them to build a place here that is big on the goodness of God. 
And we pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me?